we are in this 100-day dare, and we are going through the Bible reading program, and this week we're getting ready to read some pretty important things. We're getting ready to read, to read about uh, the cross and the resurrection. And a few years ago, I was in Denver, and we were walking around and going into a, a bookstore, and uh, we found a, a, an old bookstore, and I mean a store for old books. And we walk down into this place. Have you ever been into some place where you walk in and all of a sudden it's really awkward because it's just like you and the owner of the store, right? And now you feel like this obligation to, to buy something all of a sudden. And I wasn't there to buy something. I was just there to look at stuff. And so I'm looking around like, well, what am I going to buy? I don't know what to buy. And so I found, uh, I came across this book, which is a classic, which is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and he wrote this as an allegory in prison, uh, most of it in prison, and I love this story because it's a story about uh, a guy, it's an allegory, but it's a story about a guy named Christian who finds that he has this burden on his back that he can't seem to get rid of, like nothing he tries gets rid of it, and everyone he asks to help him get rid of it can't get rid of it with him or for him. And he hears about this opportunity, this way, this guy named Evangelist comes and tells him about a way that he can go, that he can find this, this, uh, this way for his burden to be relieved off of his back. And so he, he wants to go and he struggles with it and his family doesn't want him to go. Finally, he has to leave his family to go out on this journey. And along the way, people try to talk him out of it and try to, uh, you know, walk with him for a while, but then they can't. And he finds all of these, these issues along the way. But he gets all the way to chapter 3, which I'm going to read to you, which is my favorite part. It says, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall that was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run but not without great difficulty because the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Every time I read that or hear that, I'm just moved because of the picture that, that Christian comes up to the cross and the burden rolls off of his back. Of course, we're getting ready to read about the cross and the resurrection. You know, before the resurrection, I mean, we celebrate the resurrection, but before the resurrection, there was a cross. And for the cross to have happened, you know what? It required another ingredient. And it's found in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5, if you, can, if you have a Bible, you can pull it out or a phone or you can follow up on the screen. Uh, this isn't part of our reading, but it is tying into it. And it says this, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know what that ingredient is? That ingredient is humility. Now, this is one of those sermons that we, we want to hear because we know it's right, but we don't want to hear because it's not really flashy. It's not really something that we, uh, that we want to participate in necessarily. And it's not something that outwardly looks like we're making a lot of progress in our life whenever we're walking in humility. But I want to tell you today that this idea of humility 
is what it takes for you to grow. If you want to grow in maturity, you have to grow in humility. And, and if you want to, I mean, you can do a lot of things that look like you're spiritually mature. I mean, you know, look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You know, all of these, these people in the church of Corinth had all these spiritual gifts going on. And Paul has to write them and say, you're immature. See, this is one of these things that we have to walk in at, a, at the very basic level is humility. And this is why Jesus demonstrated this at the cross. This ingredient is humility. It means to make low. It's like whenever you're talking to a kid and you bend down to get to their eye level, that's what it means. It's for connection, and this is exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. But humility is costly. Do you realize that humility doesn't just show up in a situation? You don't just stumble upon humility. Humility actually costs somebody. Somebody has to invite humility in, and it costs somebody something. Jesus demonstrated that on the cross. It doesn't just show up. And so we are told to have humility, the same humility that Jesus had, so what does it look like for us? So what I want to do today is I want to talk about three things that humility says that I believe will help us to walk in more humility. But the problem is the, the first one, how many of you guys know we're supposed to be like Jesus, right? I mean, we're supposed, how many of you guys agree with that? I just want to know. We're supposed to be like Jesus. He came to show us the way. But this first thing that humility says is something that Jesus did not do. And it's strange for us because we know we're supposed to be like Jesus, but Jesus didn't do this. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say Jesus could not do what we are required to do. And, that, and you'll see why here in a little bit. But it is one of the ingredients to humility, and it's this. The first one is this. Humility says, I was wrong. I am wrong. You realize that Jesus never had to say that? Jesus never had to say, I'm wrong. He never had to say, I was wrong. He, he never was wrong, in fact. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So, that, I mean, so he had no sin. Never, never sinned in his life. He had no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So imagine growing up, Jesus never sinned. Can you imagine being Jesus' brother? Because you know that Mary had other children after Jesus. I mean, James, you know, who wrote the book of James, didn't even become a believer until after Jesus rose from the dead and actually appeared to him personally. Why? I mean, can you imagine James growing up and, and everything? I mean, his older brother just did right. I mean, he never got in trouble. I mean, he would try to pin stuff on him, but it never stuck because he never made a mistake. He, he never sinned right? And so James didn't even get saved until after Jesus rose from the dead, and even that didn't do it. It took a personal appearance from Jesus after that. Why? Probably because he was bitter over all those years of getting in trouble when his older brother didn't. And then can you imagine being uh, Joseph and Mary, the parents? I mean, you, you know, they have this first child, and the first child is all perfect, and it does every, I mean, you know, I don't know if he slept through the night or whatever, but he was perfect, his first child, and then the second child came. How many of you guys know some people like that? And some of you guys got the second child first, and you're mad at those people who got the first child, and you're like, I knew it, I knew it was coming. Can you imagine Joseph and Mary? They're like, man, what happened? We had this one child, and then now James comes along, and James is just full of trouble, right? And that's, that's got to be, I mean, it's got to be so annoying to do that. But I know, I know some people who never can admit that they're wrong. 
We always have to reframe it. We always have to repackage it. We always have to change the circumstances. But we can never say that we're wrong in any way. And you, you know what? The problem with that is that if you want to follow Jesus, being able to say I was wrong or I am wrong is actually a key and vitally necessary to repentance. You cannot hold back on that if you want to walk in repentance. And yet we're called to a life of repentance. We're called to be people who, yes, our sins are forgiven us. Yes, he washes us whiter than snow. But yes, daily we walk in repentance. We have to walk this out in repentance even though we have been forgiven. And so it's the heart of repentance. And if we can't walk in repentance and say that I am wrong and I need to change, then we're not being actually followers of Jesus. And so this first thing that says I was wrong is something Jesus didn't have to do, but it is something that we are required to do. And it reminds me of this story about humbling ourselves that Jesus told. Now, you know, I like to kind of give you some visuals and stuff to help, help remember that. So just a little different way for you to hear the story, but this is actually a parable that Jesus told. Let's watch. A rabbi, a monk, and a pastor walk into a church. We've all heard these kind of jokes before. They poke fun at stereotypes. The monk has a cross, the rabbi has a beard, and the minister, he wears expensive shoes. Now before we dismiss this as just another childish joke, take a look at Luke 18, where Jesus starts a parable in almost exactly this way. Let's read. A Pharisee and a tax collector walk into the temple to pray. Sound familiar? Jesus continues. The Pharisee posed and prayed like this. <clears throat> Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid like this tax man. I fast twice a week and tithe on all my income. Meanwhile, the tax man slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, said, God, have mercy, forgive me, a lousy sinner. Maybe Jesus paused here and looked around at the crowd, giving them a few seconds to figure out where he was going with this. Then he finished. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. For most of us, this would be our mic drop moment. And while Jesus isn't afraid to call people out, he isn't doing it for TikTok views. He wants to give people life, and he knows that no matter how righteous we think we are, pride is lurking, ready to drag us back down to death. It's a simple parable with a clear message. Pride puts us in a place only God can be, and those who seek it out will be humble. But when we humble ourselves before God, He graciously invites us to join Him in His glory. All right, so just a little thing to remind us that those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, I... You know, there was a lot of people who wanted to work with teenagers, but they thought they had to be cool enough to work with teenagers. They thought they had to, to, you know, to, to fit in, right? And I heard this thing a long time ago that said that teenagers don't want someone to be like them. They want somebody that they can be like. So, so many times we think that we've got to be like them to be able to reach them. But no, it's just simply being somebody who that they can look up to and say, you know what? They're different than me, but I want to be like that someday. And can I just talk to parents for just a moment here? 
Because on this topic of humility, here's what sometimes we do as parents. We want to look like we have it all together, that we're always right, that we're never wrong. Sometimes we think that if we, if we were to be wrong or to make a mistake, that it would look like we didn't know what we were doing. And if somehow we would lose authority with our kids and, and being able to, uh, to uh, you know, discipline them in a certain way or something. But listen... Kids, and I'll just say this, kids don't need you to be a perfect parent or to pretend to be a perfect parent. Kids just need somebody who, they, when they look at their parents, they see someone who's decided to follow Jesus. That no matter what, even if we mess up, we make up, even if we make a mistake, we repent. I can't tell you how many times I've had to say sorry to my kids because I messed something up. And you know what? That doesn't make me weaker. It doesn't make my authority weaker. It actually makes it stronger. Because they see somebody who's decided to follow Jesus. Because I, I am, as a parent, I am willing to humble myself even before my kids. And that's what it takes sometimes. Now, so what do you do if you realize that you're wrong? Because there's times when we need to say, I am wrong. What do you do when you realize that you're wrong? Well, you got to go make it right. Whatever the cost, you make it right. And, and maybe there are some areas right now that you're thinking of uh, in your marriage or with your kids or with your friends that you can think of, maybe even small areas that you can say, I was wrong, I am sorry, I messed it up. It, you know, because sometimes we need like training wheels. You know, when, when you're first learning to ride a bike, you know, sometimes the, you, know, you can be sent out there and crash and burn or you can get some training wheels to kind of get the feel for it. And you know, the Bible says if we're faithful in little, we will be faithful in much. So maybe there's some areas right now, that even small areas that you can start off and you can begin to say, I was wrong. So humility says I was wrong. The, the next thing humility says is this, my thoughts are not my God. My thoughts are are not my God. Have you noticed that everyone thinks they are normal? How many of you guys know people who are not normal? But how many of you guys know everyone thinks they're normal? So the question is, how do you know if you are normal? Because you think you're normal. You think that whatever you are is normal. And that's the point, that everyone thinks that what they think is right. And so humility says that my thoughts are not my God. And why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. One, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts, this is God saying this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. So God thinks different thoughts than we do from time to time, right? And neither are my ways or your ways my ways. So his thoughts are going to be different than our thoughts. And if we make our thoughts God, then we miss God. <laughs> and, and he goes on and says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So humility trades in our thoughts for God's thinking. Do you realize that even Jesus did this? Now, it seems weird because Jesus is God, right? He's 100% God, 100% human but even Jesus traded in his thoughts at times. Watch this. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He goes to the garden. He goes to pray. And in a famous passage of scripture in Luke chapter 22, verse 41, we'll read this week. It says, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed. And he said this, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. He knew the cross was coming. He knew it was coming, and he was wrestling with it. He says, if you're willing, Remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, 
not the way I'm thinking, not what I want, but yours be done. You realize there are many times in our life when we have to exchange our thoughts for God's thoughts. My thoughts are not my God. If I make my thoughts my God, then guess what? I'm going to be off course quite a bit. Why is that? Because you, you got to understand that you are not the architect of every thought that comes into your mind. You say, well, what do you mean? I mean, they're my thoughts. I've had those thoughts. Do you realize that every advertisement is trying to plant thoughts into your brain that you didn't have before? You realize that every single Facebook is trying to plant thoughts in your brain that you did not have before. Politics are trying to plant thoughts in your brain that you did not have before. Television is trying to plant thoughts in your brain that you didn't have before. The enemy, Satan, is trying to plant thoughts in your brain that you did not have before. So you cannot assume that every thought that you have is your thought. You're not the architect of every one of them. So when we make our thoughts, our way of thinking, our God or our guide, we get in trouble really quick. Now the problem is we get pretty prideful about this because we think that we're normal and we think that we're right all the time. And so whatever we think feels right because we thought it or we think we thought it. But you're not the architect of every thought that comes into your mind. So humility is thinking what God thinks instead of what you think. So here's the question. Are there some thoughts that you're thinking right now that maybe you need to open up your hand of your thought life and say, maybe I need to give these to God and say, maybe what feels right and I think is right, maybe I need to open those up to God about my kids, about, about my spouse, about my work situation. Maybe I need to open up my thoughts to God and say, God, are these your thoughts? Because they feel right to me, but just because they feel right to me, I'm not going to make my thoughts my God. I'm going to surrender my thoughts to my God. And here's the thing. We think a lot of times that humility means thinking smaller. But you realize that humility, if you surrender your thoughts to God, humility doesn't make your thoughts smaller all the time. When you surrender your thoughts to God, you may end up thinking bigger thoughts than smaller thoughts. Why? Because God is a big God. And if, if I exchange my way of thinking for God's way of thinking, how many of you guys know nine times out of ten, that's not going to be smaller. That's going to be larger in some way. That means I'm going to have larger love for somebody. I'm going to have more creative thoughts. I'm going to have bigger possibilities. Why? Because my limitations are not the same as God's limitations. So Ephesians chapter 3, let me just, let me just uh, prove this here. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, it says this. It says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to listen to this, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love. Listen to this. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? <laughs> It's because we, we humble ourselves and we give our thoughts to God and all of a sudden we get bigger thoughts we could never think. So the way that you can know something that surpasses knowledge, the only way you can know is when you surrender it to God and he gives you new thoughts. So to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able, listen to those words, to do far more abundantly. So far is pretty good, and more than far is really good, but abundantly more than far is really, really good, right? More, far more abundantly than all, that would include everything, we ask or even think 
according to the power at work within us. See, when we surrender our thoughts, humility, walking in humility means that we, many times we don't think smaller thoughts. We don't, I know we don't think smaller thoughts about, about people. We think bigger thoughts about people. We don't think smaller thoughts about possibilities. We think bigger thoughts. Now, let me just kind of give you a way to think about this. You know, in every single crisis that happens, you know, we've got Ukraine going on right now, right? Every crisis that happens, I, you know, pastoring throughout the years, we want to help as people, right? I mean, in the Joplin tornado that happened years and years ago, we went down and we took a trailer down there because we wanted to help. And every single crisis, a hurricane, tornado, a war, uh, anything, we want to help. But here's what, and that's a great thing, but here's what else happens usually during those situations. We also want to be a hero in the story or somehow attach ourselves to a hero in the story. We want to come in and swoop in and to be able to help to, to save the situation. And again, all of that's not necessarily a bad motivation, but it can turn into a bad motivation. This is called a savior complex, by the way. And you can research all that out, but it, it happens over and over again in situations. We want to somehow attach ourselves as a hero in the situation. It happens in missions and happens in war. It happens in, uh, you know, any type of disaster. And as we apply this to our personal lives, listen, the same is true in our personal lives. Do you realize that many times we want to be the hero of our story? You know, we want to be the one that, well, I overcame that sin. We want to be the, the one that says, well, I obeyed and look what happened. We want to be the one that says, I prayed for that person and they got healed. And we try to attach ourselves as the hero of the story, even following Jesus. But listen, can I just tell you, as Christians, if Jesus isn't the hero of our story, we got a big problem, don't we? I'll tell you what problem we have. We have a problem of pride. So whenever we try to become the hero of the story, you can, you can guarantee that pride is a part of it. And here's the problem with that. You see, if I'm the hero of the story when it comes to following Jesus in my life, guess what? I, the rules now align themselves to my limitations and my capabilities, but if Jesus is the hero of the story, the tumblers fall into place now where it's no longer what I can do, but it's all about what he can do. And it's no longer my limitations and capabilities, but it's all about his limitations and capabilities. And how many of you guys know he's not limited at all? And so when I try to become the hero, I actually limit and make it smaller. But when I surrender my thoughts to him and my ways to him, all of a sudden it opens up brand new possibilities that could never have happened before. And so I would say it this way, humility unlocks God's ability. When you, want to, when you want to see God move in your life, you got to walk in humility. Why? Because you're trading your limitations, your capabilities for God's limitations and God's capabilities, and it's quite an, an exchange. You know, the Bible says that, that uh, when we are weak, he is made strong. And, and, you know, some people kind of take that wrongly and they think, well, I just need to be as weak as possible because God's getting glory out of my weakness. That is not what that scripture means whatsoever. What it's saying there is when you are weak, God's strength shows up so that the end result is not weakness, but more strength than you would ever have. 
So it's not about how weak we can be. It's about how strong things are in the end. So when we're weak, he is strong. Yes, it's not about our weakness. It's not about seeing us being weak. It's about seeing strength come into a situation. And if you want to see God's strength in a situation, begin to walk in humility. Because humility unlocks God's ability. But, but walking in humility is not the same thing as walking in humiliation. See, a lot of times we think of humility as, well, I've got to be humiliated. And that's not the message of the cross. I mean, I'm sure there was opportunity for Jesus to experience humiliation on the cross, but that was not what the cross was all about. There's a difference between humility and humiliation. And, and we, it seems like we get a choice. It seems like we get to choose whether we will experience humility or humiliation. And some of that comes in another parable or story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 14, verse 7. It says, now he told a parable to those who were invited. He shows up at a feast. And how many of you guys know it would be kind of crazy if you're showing up at a place and Jesus shows up and he starts telling a story about you. <laughs> That's what's happening. He's like, hey guys, hypothetically, let's just say we're at a feast. And they're at a feast, right? And he's starting to tell a story about what they are doing right in that moment as a story. It says when he noticed, and we know that because it's like he started to tell the story when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And here's a famous scripture. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The choice is this. What's being said here is that you can humble yourself voluntarily, or you can be humbled by something you did not choose. You get to choose your heart, as they say. You get to choose. You can choose to voluntarily humble yourself, or you will be humbled. You will experience humiliation. The choice is yours. And some of that can be seen even as Jesus, and we're going to read about it this week in our reading, but some of this can be seen even as Jesus gathers his disciples together for that famous thing called the Last Supper. How many of you guys have seen the painting where they're all in a line, you know, in the painting, and it's like they got the folding tables out, right? And they all got in a line, and that's really not how it happened, though. And what we can see here is what Jesus talked about in this story, sometimes it doesn't make sense to us, right? It's like, what seat? You know, what honor seat? Like, what are we, is there a birthday seat or something people are sitting in? What, what's going on? Well, some of this is revealed by something that we don't do today, but they did then. And some of that is revealed by what actually happened and the seating arrangement at the Last Supper. It wasn't in the long table with the painting like you think it was. It was a little bit different, and it explains exactly why Jesus talked about this. Now, I shot a video about this in 2020, October 2020. And rather than just reshooting it, I'm going to just reshow it. Uh, but the issue is, I have my long beard in that, and I'm wondering, should I bring the beard back or not? I don't. I'll let you. Go. I got some. I got some guys who are, are wanting to see that happen. But you guys can be the judge after this video, and just just let me know. But in this, we see this this incredible truth that's revealed even by the seating arrangement. All the details in Scripture matter. So let's watch. 
All right, I've taken over the four and five room to uh, give you this little illustration because most people don't believe that it was a long table like in the, the painting or anything like that. It was actually in those times in Jesus' day, archaeological evidence even uh, presents itself that at the Last Supper that it was more of a U-shaped or a semi-circled shaped table. And it was low like this, only there actually weren't any chairs. This is just here for illustration purposes, but it was really low. And they would actually recline at the table. Remember, Scripture says that as they were reclining at the table, they would actually lean on their left side and they would eat with their right hand. And so they would kind of cascade around the circle, all leaning the same direction. And we know that this makes sense because Scripture tells us that John, the beloved, was actually leaning up against Jesus at the Last Supper. So it totally makes sense. Now, what's interesting, this open area was for serving or entertainment or anything like that. Like that. Uh, but what's interesting is the seating arrangement that would have been during this time. So in that time, the seating arrangement would have went something like this. The second chair from this side would have been the actual host of the banquet or the feast or whatever. And to that person's right would be maybe the youngest or a good friend, and somebody would be at this place. Uh, to the left of the host would be the guest of honor. And then from there on out, it would go from the greatest, which would be the guest of honor, all the way in order of importance to the least over on this side. And so that's why Jesus says, he says, when you come to a banquet, when you come to a feast, don't just assume where you're supposed to sit. Don't come and pick maybe seat number five when the, the host would then have to get up, tap you on the shoulder and say, mm, we kind of have some more important people here. I'm going to have to ask you to move down a few seats. He said, when you come to a feast, when you come to a banquet, humble yourself. He said, take the lowest spot. So then the host, now again, this all makes sense. So then the host would come and tap you on the shoulder and move you up a few spots of importance so that those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Now, what's interesting is we can uh, pretty much understand what happened or where the seating arrangement was with the disciples at the Last Supper. We know that Jesus was the host of the feast. So Jesus was actually sitting in chair number two on this side. We know that John, the beloved, had to be sitting right here at this end seat because he was leaning up against Jesus. So we know John was sitting there. Uh, we know that most likely m many people believe that Peter was actually sitting in the least spot of honor. And this person over here would actually many times be responsible for washing the feet of the other people at the, the table or maybe going and getting things, which you know had to just frustrate Peter, right? But we know this because Peter had to motion over to John to ask Jesus a question. And so what's interesting about all of this is who the guest of honor was at the Last Supper. And we know who it was. Because if you'll remember, Jesus said, the one who betrays me is the one who puts his hand in the dish with me. We know, and what's amazing about this, Jesus showing ultimate humility and ultimate sermon illustration. He put Judas Iscariot, his betrayer, at the seat of the guest of honor. Now, that's incredible, but again, it points this picture that those who exalt themselves will be humble and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, what's happening next at the Last Supper is going to demonstrate, Jesus is, is going to illustrate exactly what it means to, that, that your greatest moment is not when you're being served, but when you serve. 
Isn't that pretty incredible? Didn't that help you understand a little bit about what was happening there and what Jesus was talking about? Now, at this table, so now, now get that scene that they're all seated there in order of importance. And then this conversation happens in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. So a dispute arose among them, among the disciples, as to which one of them would be regarded as the greatest. They're having that conversation right there at the table. It says, and so Jesus says, and he said to them, the kings and the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority of them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Isn't it the one who reclines at the table? But I'm among you as one who serves. And so Jesus is telling us that your greatest moments are not when you're being served, but when you actually serve. And at some point during this feast, what's amazing about it all is that Jesus gets up and he washes their feet. He is the greatest there, right? And he's showing what great, the greatest do. And he gets up and he serves. See, what happens is we want to prove our greatness. We want everyone to see how great we are by visibly looking at it. And if somebody walked into the room at that moment and they saw Jesus washing feet, they would think that he was the least. See, sometimes we want to prove our greatness. We want to prove that I'm better than everybody else. We want to prove how right we are. But here's the last thing that humility says. Humility says, I don't have to be proven right to do what's right. My dad used to say it this way. He said, you don't have to be right to be right. <laughs> and what he meant by that was, you know what? There are times in your life that, you know, you want to argue yourself until you can finally, you know, without uh, any, any question, be proven that it's right. It's documented how right you are. And he was saying there are times when you're going to have to just walk away and know that you, are, you did the right thing. You, you trusted in God. You did, you, you're right before God, and that's enough. You don't have to be proven right to do what's right. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus demonstrates this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus did not have sin, and yet sin was put upon him. Right? He, he absorbed the wrong even though he never did what was wrong. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He absorbed our wrong on the cross. He, he, he didn't do any wrong, but he absorbed it. That's called humility. Do you know what, that, that's the heart of forgiveness too. If you want to walk in forgiveness to other people, you know what forgiveness is? It means you're absorbing a wrong and you're not making them pay it back. That you've decided that I'm not going to retaliate, I'm not going to hang on to my right for revenge, that even, yes, you, you know, it, it, things aren't even, but I'm going to absorb the wrong. That's the heart of forgiveness. That's what Jesus showed us on the cross. And Jesus wasn't a doormat to humanity, for humanity just to walk all over. No, in fact, he was the doorway to humility. And again, I'm not talking about in areas of, of abuse or things like that where you just, you know, I'm just going to take it all the time. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is that there are so many times in our life when what we want to have happen is to be proven right, but what we know can happen is to absorb the wrong and to do what's right. And just to walk right before God. This is what Jesus did. You know, Jesus did no wrong, yet he was crucified as a criminal and a terrorist. Just like all of it, he took, he took all of that on. It's not a convincing way to try to convince people, hey, I'm the king, I'm, I'm in charge. 
And, and to then be crucified, that's not how you prove you're a win. You're, you're winning if you were a, a, you know, in war at that time. That would look like surrender. That would look like you lost. But yet that's the way God chose to save us, and it looks foolish to us. I, I mean, sometimes we, we just think, why would God do it that way? I mean, I, I think many times, if I were God, I wouldn't do it that way. How many of you guys have ever had that thought before about a lot of things? If I were God, I wouldn't do it that way. But you know what? If I'm honest, if I were God, then Sean Phillips wouldn't qualify to get into heaven. Because so many times I'm tempted to, to judge everyone else by a standard that I really can't keep either. And so even though it looks foolish to us on the surface, to those of us who are being saved and we know what Jesus has done for us, it looks so wonderful, doesn't it? Like, thank goodness that... God was willing to sacrifice his life even though he did no wrong and to take my wrong upon him. It's so beautiful. So we've talked mostly about the cost of humility, but do you realize that there is a reward of humility? You know what the reward is? It's communion with Christ. You know, the Bible talks about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We, we don't really think about that in our day, in, in our culture, because we think any type of suffering is, is something we should avoid. And yet, absorbing someone else's sin and forgiveness is a form of suffering. The church throughout the ages understood this. In fact, we have people like one-way missionaries who would get on a boat going to a, a place that they knew they were never returning because they wanted to share in the sufferings of Christ and be able to, to spread the gospel, right? This is, this is, there is a reward there. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to participate in communion. There's tables in back and there's tables in front. The worship team's going to come, or Pastor Aaron's going to come, and we're going to get ready to participate in communion. But I want to remind you of something, that there's also a joy in humility. There's a joy in walking in humility, not the kind of humility and the joy that, you know, that leads to pride, because you realize that can happen. Oh, look how humble I am. Oh, look how much I've forgiven other people. No, but genuinely a joy in walking in humility. But as we close, I'm going to look at one last scripture that we're going to look at in our reading this week. It's in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. He's at the Last Supper. He's at that table sitting with his disciples. And it says, and he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. That's when we take this cracker that's in, in this packet here. It's representing the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so when we drink the juice, we're reminded of the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. But there's, there's four things that happen here. It says that he took bread, and then he gave thanks. Your translation of your scripture might say that he blessed it. And then it says he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and then he gave it. This is the pattern that Jesus followed whenever he would do this. In fact, this is what he did when he, you know, at the feeding of the 5,000. He took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it. This is Jesus' pattern. He does this over and over and over again. So much so that when the disciples, after the resurrection, remember these two disciples are walking on this road called Emmaus, and Jesus joins them. It's about a seven-mile journey, I believe. Jesus joins them, but they don't recognize that it's Jesus. And so they're walking, and they're talking, and they're saying, man, have you heard of all the things that have happened, and this guy got crucified, and all this type of stuff. And Jesus begins to tell them about, walks all through the Old Testament, and the prophets, and the prophecies 
They still don't know it's Jesus, and they're walking with him the whole time. And they get to the place where they're going to stop, and Jesus acts as if he's going to go further. But they restrain him. They say, no, please come. And so he comes, and he sits down at the table with them. And what happens? He took bread. He blessed the bread. He broke the bread. He gave the bread. And they're like, it's Jesus. And instantly he disappeared from their sight. They recognized him in this pattern. But this isn't just a pattern that Jesus does with bread. This is a pattern that he does with humanity. How many of you guys have been took by Jesus before? You've been taken by Jesus. We could, we could categorize that in a lot of ways, that he came and he first loved us, that we could, we could say that we've been captivated by him, that we go back to our first love. Has anybody been took by the love of God? Has anybody been blessed by Jesus? And I'm not talking about financial blessings or anything. I'm talking about the inheritance that we have, the riches of his grace, the peace of God that comes. We have been, this is the pattern that he does with humanity. He takes us, he blesses us. But then there's a point in us, as we grow in God, where there needs to be a breaking in us. And this is what we're talking about today, this area of humility. There are some things in us, come on, if we're honest, need to be broken off of us. There's some pride in us that has to go. There's some ways that we've been thinking about people and situations and our family and all sorts of things that has to be broken off of us. And this is what it means to walk in maturity. Because it's really fun to be taken by Jesus. It's really awesome to be blessed by Jesus. But most people just stop at being taken and blessed. And they won't go into the breaking. But the reason why the breaking is necessary is so that the last thing can happen. It's so that we can be given to other people. And so he takes us, he blesses us. There's things in us that need to break, but it's so that we can be given to other people. It's so that we can have the right heart. Because if all that we were were taken and blessed, when we're given to other people, we might have a wrong message. We might have a wrong heart. We might have a prideful heart. That we know best, we think best. But it's in the breaking that we can actually be given. And so when we're coming to the table today, I want us to be reminded of that, that we're, in, we're inviting ourselves, we're reminded of being taken by Jesus. Oh God, we're so thankful for our first love, that you died for us even while we were still sinners. And we thank you, God, for the blessing that you have, that you've given to us. Lord, we thank you that we've been blessed with every blessing in the heavenly places. But we're also coming to the table because we're voluntarily willing to have things in us that need to be broken off. And as we come to the table today, God, we volunteer to have the breaking happen so that we can participate in what you want to do in our lives to, so that we can be given out. And Lord, as we come to this table today and we have this moment with you, Lord, do something in our heart that only you can do as we trade our thoughts for your thoughts, as we trade our way for your way, as we trade our will for your will. Lord, as we are able to say, I'm wrong and I repent and I turn from this and I turn to you. Lord, we don't have to be proven right to do what's right. Jesus, we want to participate with you and come to the cross in humility where something in us needs to die so that something of you can live. Lord, that's our prayer today as we come. 
That's our prayer. Listen, so what's going to happen is right now, Pastor Aaron's going to sing, and we're going to come up. There's tables in front, tables behind. Take that element, take it back to your seat. And we, you know, throughout the last two years, we've had them at your seat, but I just really felt like there was something important about actually coming to the table. Something actually important about us coming to the table of God. And take it back to your seat and just have a moment with God. Just see what it'll do. I promise it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be beautiful because Jesus is wonderful. And what he does in us is wonderful. So right now, let's come.